0: Welcome to the Take Us to the Game podcast, a light-hearted and irreverent look at the world of sport. My name is Richard Baker and I'm joined this week by Oliver Bierhoff Scully. Hello. Thomas Brolin Gibbs.
1: Hello, happy with that. And Anthony Zubizarreta Murray. Actually, that's not good. (laughs) He's famous for being not very good in major finals and making a fool of himself. So I'm, I'm jealous of Bierhoff and Brolin. Oh, okay, was there a more famous footballing Anthony that I could have gone for in the Euros? Uh, Penenka. Oh, okay, yeah. good. Real
2: good one. Antonin.
0: As good as you're going to
1: get. Come on.
0: <laughs> just just be pleased you didn't get uh, Tony Cruz.
3: You have Tony Adams.
0: <laughs> he played <laughs> he Euro 86,
3: did. didn't he? Kat? Yeah,
0: he did. And we're straight in with uh, the Euros chat this week because, of course, we're on the eve of Euro 2000 even though the year is 2001. We're still a year of 2000
2: in, in UEFA language. Uh, is... Do you want to add 20 years to those dates? What did I call it? 2000 and 2001. Yeah.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> Already we're into the nostalgia. You've, missed, I'm <laughs> about.
2: You've missed 20 years of hurt.
0: What, you mean England haven't won one in the last 20 years?
2: Have you been in a coma? Oh, yeah.
0: next thing you're going to tell me that city is still rubbish. <laughs> euro 2020 uh is is upon us it starts on friday night big match between the roman and the ottoman empire or <laughs> italy and turkey as they are today i've immediately sort of tipped my hat and started thinking about you know euros by accidentally calling it euro 2000 but let's start with anthony
1: what's your what's your first memory of of the euros first i, I, I remember being aware that the dutch did something but I'd be lying if I said I genuinely remembered like Van Basten's Volley or something like that. The one that I genuinely remember is Euro 92 and the, the aforementioned Thomas Brolin goal against the English. That was a a, a highlight in any Scottish home. Although it did result, uh, I don't even remember, Thomas Brawlin's famous celebration where he kind of ran away and did a sort of spin jump with his hand in the air, like sort of a little Super Mario sort of thing. And I remember attempting that the next day in the school playground and botching it and falling spectacularly, and we had no grass. This was all tarmac, so I ended up with like cut elbows and stuff. So you get the last laugh, yeah, you know, as I bask in English misery. How about you, Tom? Uh,
2: I I don't know if I'm older than Tony, but I, I guess I am because I do remember '88, and I seem to be re- mostly remember being fascinated by hair and Rude <laughs> Hullett's hair, yeah, po- casting a spell over me at the age of seven, I suspect. <laughs> I'm sure I love the goals too, but you know that maybe a bit of Rudy Fowler as well. That's lovely, lovely hair. I think I'm similar to Tony in that I remember
0: certain aspects of that tournament, but I don't think yeah. I really appreciated it. My memory of Euro '88 is the uh, it's the last tournament for the USSR and the classic CCCP kits, yeah. you know, across the front and just being. I think probably only recently, having learned to read, being incredibly confused by this country called UCS- USSR, was represented by, by CCCP. But for me, it is the 92 World Cup and that, that horrible game against the Swedes that, that we lost. Because prior to that, my own experience of international tournaments was...
2: You've called it the World Cup now. How
0: am I doing? Euro 92. When my own experience of international tournaments before that had been Italia '90, and I always just assumed that England were going to be good in international tournaments. And then to see them lose to the Swedes, having having I think taken the lead through a David Platt goal, and then losing two one and getting knocked out, uh, yeah, it was pretty disappointing. How about you, Ollie? Yeah,
3: I, rem- I remember. I remember '92. I don't. I don't remember '88. Uh, and I, I think like you, I sort of remember the excitement of uh, of Italia '90. And it sort of it being a big deal and some members of my family that really weren't into football still allowed us to listen to it on the radio and so i kind of like got the impression that that was a big deal and then 92 sort of came along and it just just seemed like a, a, a damp squib from a very early stage it's like oh i thought this was supposed to be supposed to be good and then and we just sort of realised that okay, there is a rest of this tournament which is sort of gonna gonna trundle on and you can you can follow the rest of it, but England are not, no longer at the party. So sort I of had to come figure out how tournaments worked. You know, should have it was, it was a good life lesson though.
0: And I think the '92 was the last of the eight-team format because then in '96 it went to 16 teams. In the time we've been watching football, we've established we all got into it around 1990. You know, the World Cup has really only been won by the big teams in that in that period. Whereas, you know, three out of the last seven Euros, I guess you could say quite upset victories Denmark in 92, Portugal uh, in the most recent edition, and then, you know, Greece in 2004, which, I mean, it was an underdog victory. I mean, it was <laughs> defeat for the concept of football. But what, what, Anthony, what do you think it is about the Euros format that, that sort of lends itself more to? Upsets than perhaps other tournaments.
1: I'm not sure about the opposite. I'd not really thought about that. You know, with Ronaldo's generation of Portugal, you know, we can hardly write them down as diddies And it's actually only in the fullness of time, I think, if you study football, you realize how good Michael Laudrup was. Although he actually, now that I say that, he missed Euro 92. The, the greatest Denmark player of all time <laughs> missed mad. the tournament and his little brother goes and wins it, so that must rankle. But yeah, Schmeichel and stuff were, were good, good players. Uh, but yeah, that that is obviously an upset. Uh, was Schmeichel already United in 92? Not only United then. He might have moved after the tournament or something, mm. but it was certainly close to it. Did he get signed off the back of the tournament, did he? That makes no, sense. No,
2: I think it... I thought it took another year thereafter. I'd have to look it up though, so... Yeah, answers on a postcard. But I'm fairly sure he wasn't there at United at that point because there was still a goalkeeping competition by the way
0: But that used to be the, one of the things about international tournaments that perhaps you don't have so much nowadays is that somebody who performed well in a tournament could then get a big money move off the back of it. You think of like um, Karol Paborski in yeah. 96 for the Czechs, then moving on to United afterwards.
3: I'm pretty certain that quite a lot of clubs signed up Greece place after... <laughs> after 2004 i mean that, that is a club shop's dream isn't it because if you're paying <laughs> you're paying to put put names on the back of shirts, and you're paying like 50p a letter what you want is a, a new greek signing your big overseas star and you're gonna get like
2: an extra 20 letters <laughs> on the back of the shirt i'm gonna pull myself up as well because i've just looked schmeichel signed for united in 91 <laughs> uh, having having ripped you for saying 20, taking 20 years off this whole thing and pulling up the world cup i've now absolutely paid my penance i hope but that probably explains a lot of united's success in the 90s on ollie's theory schmeichel's a lot of letters comes in 91 going to sell a lot of goalie jerseys which are already exactly. more expensive Bankrolled the cantonal transfer and it all makes sense
3: yeah they, they use the money from schmeichel's shirt sales to build the big mega store, and then after that, that was you know decade of domination.
1: I'm trying to remember whether or not because I'm thinking of the Greek players. Bolton Wanderers had Stelios Giannakopoulos or whatever. I can What did he have in the back of his shirt? Because if it was he just Stelios, massive,
3: he just had a massive shirt. <laughs>
1: if, if if he just had Stelios, that might be in the difference between your know, Bolton eventually going to the wall and not. You know, had he had they gone with the full name. They might have had some extra money I in mean, their coffers. I think he had it in Greek letters. It just looked like an equation <laughs>
0: on the back of his shirt.
2: Yeah. And but, there were plenty of more exciting Bolton players to, to his shirt. You'd probably buy ahead of his.
0: Oh, of course. what JJ, uh, Jokoev, Ivan Jukai
1: Campo. Jukai. Yeah. Gosh, the golden era of Bolton football. I actually had that Bolton shirt, believe it or not. I've got, I've <laughs> got relatives in Bolton. <laughs> uh, <yeah.
0: laughs> shirt sales is probably the most coherent theory for georgia Samaras that i've ever heard so yeah i'm gonna go with
3: that because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I to be honest i really i really enjoyed the greeks winning it and i know i know you <laughs> didn't enjoy the style of football but the world cup before brazil had won it and it was a bit i sort of found that a bit like oh it's brazil again you know get, making it a bit boring brazil winning it uh and i kind of i i'm not a huge fan of the sort of some of the hype that goes goes around brazil teams so greece winning the euros felt like it was sort of two fingers up but you know the the sort of big nations winning tournaments like well brazil you can win the world cup but, but the greeks win the euros and somehow that sort of felt quite um quite restorative so i mentioned the
0: format and i think 90 I, I, at the beginning of the podcast i talked about you know russia playing oh sorry soviet union playing in 88 the old cccp on the shirts but then you have the at the end of history in 92 and uefa goes from whatever it is 20 odd associate nations to within a decade like more than 50 but the tournament stays relatively concentrated in terms of only 16 teams qualifying for the finals between 96 and the 2012 edition you have 16 teams making the finals and every team of those 16s is a decent side so unlike the world cup where you get maybe one or two also rounds per group you know the group stage is so competitive And every team is competent that's making the final. So the Greek example is a team that were very functional. They had a great defence and they were decent from a set piece. And that was almost enough to do it in the Euros because the standard was so good that, you know, you you could get the upset perhaps.
2: I'm I'm wondering how much it had to do with the German management installed at the place, whether that, you know, made them so ruthlessly efficient, efficient. And then my mind's running away with what... You know, nationality, national traits, Greek plus German equals <laughs> wow, <a lot. laughs> philosophical uh, resilience or efficiency.
0: We're getting into Monty Python territory here. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Well,
2: they by both <laughs> he called version.
3: philosophy. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, yeah, no, I, I i agree with you, though. I mean, there, there is no, generally, no weak link in a Euro tournament. And I still think that's the case in the 24 team version. I, I, I think there's a case even to be made for your North Macedonians and your Slovakias and your Hungaries that they have earned their place there through a process.
1: I would I'd contest that on the grounds that I think the, the 16 tournament was so lean you know, as a tournament that you, you, you really couldn't be a bad team and be there you know, as the, the Scottish representative on the show. It, it was very much the SFA you know, were the driving force on this expansion at a point when we could not qualify for anything. Uh, there was a guy called Gordon Smith was in charge of the, the the SFA. He's now gone bankrupt. So tells us about his abilities to plan his own life. You've uh, got to be a
2: particularly bad football official to go bankrupt.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he's managed to be part of the the conversation that has forced the you know the expansion of the tournament. And then even then, it takes the creation of an even new safety net for Scotland to then stumble the way through the the Nations League skank their way past Israel and Serbia on penalties and even then tumble into the tournament so it's the great celebration that the Scots are having of having got there you know there's a there's a lot of uh, fault lines on that so they're lucky to be there and it's at the it's scraping into a, a an expanded tournament that I don't necessarily agree with so I think I'm somewhere in the middle on it in that I kind of I agree with Tom
0: that there are 24 decent sides. I think every every side qualifying is, <laughs> Scotland included, let's not be mean, are good sides and deserve to, to, to play in the tournament. I think it's more a question on the maths of it, in that when you have the 16 feeding through into the eight, into the knockouts, and only two qualifying per group, it means you really can't slip up in the group stage. Whereas once you get to that point where three teams are qualifying out of six of the eight groups... It means that some of the bigger sides, they can afford that shock defeat. And sometimes they can afford a shock defeat and then a draw, and then they win their last game and then they're safely through. But I suppose the upside of that is it gives us an expanded knockout of the 16 teams. So I guess there's arguments either way.
2: You know, we've moved there from the quality of the team to the format, perhaps. And the format, I think, has got problems because 24 is not a great number for making quarterfinals essentially and that i can accept and i will absolutely concede and it's it's shown very clearly by a huge fault i think with this tournament in that i think there's no incentive for england or scotland to win group d because the winner of group d is going to end up playing the second place in group f okay the second place in group f is going to be one of france germany or portugal in all likelihood which is nonsense Because if you're a runner-up in Group D, you're going to play the runner-up from Group E, and that's going to be probably one of Poland, Sweden, Slovakia. Now, what do you want there? That's assuming
0: assuming the Spanish win Group E.
2: It is slightly assuming the Spanish win Group E, but I think that's a relatively safe assumption, and assuming the Hungarians don't come top or second in Group F. But you see what I mean. The the, the, the logic of the qualification is skewed by the format itself, and that's a problem.
0: It's going to be Olympics badminton all over again, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that would make for a strange um, strange spectacle, wouldn't it? If both England and Scotland are playing to lose, I don't that would have ever happened before.
2: I think the it's Scots will be comfortable at. with it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It won't be any sort of what the Italians call gemellaggio, where you know two teams that like each other agree a result beforehand. Of yeah. course, the famous one on that, if I can get the year right now, I haven't got the year right a single time yet. But I think it was Euro 2004 yeah. when the Italians were set to progress. The only way they wouldn't progress to the knockout phase is if Denmark and Sweden were to play out a tool draw. And of course, you know, the Gazzetta della Sport was full of uh, conspiracy theories on the day of the game that the Scandinavians had, had stitched it up. Only because it's, it's what the Italians would have done. <laughs> yeah. it takes one
3: to know one, doesn't it, really?
2: And with complete disregard for what Danes and Swedes generally think of each other.
3: Yeah, yeah. And of course, that game
0: finished, ends up finishing two all. I think you're right. I think that, that's one of the, these odd quirks of it, that yeah, there's no, there's no real incentive to win that group, except for, I guess you could take the, the opposite view, that that would keep England at Wembley in the last 16 uh, and keep them on track for a... Uh, but no, it wouldn't matter for the quarterfinal. They would have to go somewhere else anyway. That's sort of one of the quirks of this tournament. And, it was, and when it was originally envisaged, it was supposed to be a, a festival of football across the whole tournament. Do you guys like the idea of this, Let's share it around the continent? Or do you prefer a tournament to be in a country?
3: I'm, I'm sort of reserving judgment a little bit. Because for me, there hasn't been that moment which has made me think kind of like, right, the tournament's here. And I don't know whether that's just because of because of COVID and it being delayed a year and that there hasn't sort of been somehow the natural hype, you know, coming out of qualifying into the start of the tournament. And, or is it because it's not got, you know, just a single host country, you know, that you can almost sort of, where is it this year? The Euros are coming up, where is it? And you're able to say, yes, it's going to take place in the country here. So I don't know. I don't know. S- something means that it's not, there just isn't quite the buzz that kind of happens in the lead-up to the tournament. I mean, has anyone seen a flag, an English flag on a car yet? For me, that is normally the sign that the tournament is a you know is upon us. Guessing given you probably I'm, haven't, Tom.
2: Yeah, given I'm looking out the window in uh, Paisley, I think if I saw <laughs> a car with an English flag going past, it'd be under heavy gunfire.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like burning car, with an English flag on it. But I haven't I haven't seen one around around my local area richard have you have the flags out in your down your way
2: i have a car flag
3: have you yeah. <laughs> oh right
2: uh, jesus is it kept in your vu vu cupboard <laughs> yeah. it, it, we're
0: having some painting done and, uh, and the, the, the guy had a spare <laughs> so i've got oh so didn't, you didn't he didn't buy it you no, I, d- I didn't buy it. I mean, it's just about the only time it's acceptable <laughs> in England to uh, to put the flag of St. George you know, anywhere <laughs> is during an international <laughs> tournament. And even then, you're on slightly shaky grounds. But I think you're right. I mean, in a sense, if England... I'm not going to get ahead of myself and say that you know, they'd get all the way to the to the final. But the, the track is there for them to play six out of seven games at Wembley. So to all intents and purposes, it is a home Euros. But you're right, it doesn't feel that way at all. Where's uh- the final?
3: Wembley. Wembley. So I guess you, you, I compare it to the, the to Euro 96, so the last sort of home tournament. My memories of that were that there was quite a lot of on the local news about how tickets hadn't been selling that well yeah. in the run-up to the tournament. And you know, you know were there going to be empty stadiums? I think it was because like the Yorkshire news was covering the fact that games were playing played uh, in Sheffield. And like, I think the Romanian team were based there. And so they were trying to obviously drum up some support for we're going to watch Romania play, and it felt, it felt like, like this, this tournament was happening, but was it going to be a success? And I think the moment that made me think it was sort of actually going to sort of transcend kind of football and become a, like a cultural event was when they they sailed the big sort of papier mache trophy down past Chris Evans' window on TFI Friday. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. They got it on a they obviously <laughs> they got it on a barge and then sort of negotiate they could have it for the have it for the day and that's that moment made me think okay actually this is not just you know football that's turning up on grandstand, but it's turning up on kind of like football it's turning up on like chat shows and in, in between bands on TFI Friday and therefore it's somehow it's actually part of what everybody is is watching this summer and that's kind of how it how it played out because he was success on the pitch as well
0: when it's in a single country it becomes a, a kind of a touch point for the tournament in terms of the branding of it the feel of it and i'm thinking i'm probably going to think more of world cups than euros but i'm, I'm thinking like italia 90 and you know pavarotti through to ode to joy with the with the german world cup and then, and then in russia you had sort of the, the basilica in um red square was like the backdrop to all of it and that sort of gave a, a, a kind of a brand to the tournament mm. in a way that you don't quite get with this one
3: for many years i really struggled to call any other euros tournament not euro 96 like where's euro 96 <laughs> gonna be this year yeah yeah that's never reflected me
2: <laughs> that interestingly that was the first european championships to actually use the euro year sort of name it already always previously been you know the european championships of 1992, whatever. There you go. So branding was deliberate and Brandy, clearly work. worked on you. It did certainly work so on added, me. added a papier-mâché barge in your soul. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's the smaller things about it that I really like in terms of where teams base themselves in the host country. You know, there was debates in, in England over where they were going to set themselves up for Poland-Ukraine, and I think they ended up putting themselves... It was Krakow. That was it. But for this one, obviously, you'd have thought most teams are going to stay in their home country for their training camp wouldn't you
1: well croatia and czechia as i'll call them that's the the modern label we're both scheduled to stay in nice hotels in scotland but because of covid restrictions both pulled out just a week ago maybe two weeks ago so yeah. they're both going to commute from their, their home bases. And obviously, you know, Scotland are going to, the, the Scottish economy is going to miss out a tiny bit of money, I guess, or a relatively tiny bit of my money. Yeah, it would be, you know, I'm sure staying in St Andrews would have been nice for the Croats. Can't imagine there's many golfers <laughs> in the a group. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Tony, but Scotland will not be staying
0: in Scotland. No? No, they've set their base camp in, they're going to be in Middlesbrough for the tour. Really?
2: <laughs> the no logic That's behind fair. that? Well, Scotland class, as I like to <laughs> <laughs>
3: the most scottish place south of the border possibly i'm not sure
0: why why are they doing that honestly why are they doing that i heard on
3: the radio earlier today
0: that they're going to be near middlesbrough i can understand the rationale from steve clark's point of view of maybe get them away from the the host country
3: (laughs) get (laughs) them away from scotland i get
0: them away from sort of you know the fans and you know friends and family and just a little bit outside that pressure cook environment and then steve clark has obviously had most of his professional career either playing or managing in england but it's not like he's at i don't know chelsea or reading or any of his other teams i'm not sure why middlesbrough but yeah it did, did strike me as slightly odd that scotland have decided to base themselves in, in england for the tournament
1: i guess it's just to make it feel like an event you know otherwise it'd yeah. just be like a qualifying international and it, you know maybe the players would just go through the motions and where's that got us That's so, a great
3: great track record on that front yeah.
1: The fact that you're actually going to a different spot, it would feel different, you know, and Christ knows what the people in Middlesbrough sound like, you know, they're going to sound like foreigners. (laughs) Anthony, there's a possibility you might get to one of the games, right? A small chance. I knew there was games in Budapest, but I thought they were midweek games. But I've since learned potentially France, Hungary and Budapest is on a, a Saturday night. Which I could, cool. I could get down there on the Saturday morning or the Friday night and get back up on the Sunday. So I could easily get that and it wouldn't affect work at all. So not guaranteed, but not impossible.
2: And it's probably worth saying you are based in Central Europe. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm like, in Bratislava.
0: So, 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 pop down to Budapest. You know? <laughs> Miles from Budapest as the George Ezra song began. I mentioned that because I know you've been fortunate enough to attend. Some tournaments in the past, and I was fortunate enough to get over to a couple of games at the 2016 edition in France. It's quite a different feel to tournament games than compared to even, say, club football, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the festival element of it is wonderful, you know, as a football fan. The game I went to at Euro 2008 was in Innsbruck, an absolutely idyllic little town with, you know, mountains on both sides. Their fan zone. Was on their Olympic ski jump. So <laughs> you're literally going, you know, a little bit up a mountain, and there's a giant big screen. I watched the the famous game where the Dutch gave, I think, Italy an absolute doing. It looked like the the van der Vaart, Schneider era Dutch team were really going to kick on. You know, there's a parallel universe where that dutch team win that tournament and we forget (laughs) about the great spain team but yeah watching that in in that situation and then the next day going to the spain russia game was you know one of the great experiences of my life you know and so all these towns coming to life with that flow of fans as well you know it's not just the two groups of fans that are there on the day you've you've got fans that are going to be there in a couple of days and yeah, you know, a real mix, a real positive atmosphere for the most part, you know, and everyone seems to enjoy it. I went to one game
0: in Toulouse in the southwest, a relatively small city, and there it was—it was almost you really felt like you were in the middle of something because the amount of fans in the city compared to the size of it was really significant. You know, the bars were all packed. I went to to Belgium v Hungary in the in, in the round of 16, and they were all packed with with Belgian fans and Hungarian fans, etc. But then I went to Italy, Spain in Paris. And there it felt a little bit like Paris was such a big city. It almost just swallowed up the tournament. And, you know, the game, for those of who aren't familiar with, with Stade de France, it's it's so far out of the city centre that it was it was just any other day in Paris. Even though they had a fan park in front of the Eiffel Tower, you know, yeah. even that took, took some finding. So I guess it's quite dependent on, on where you are in the country and how much the city puts an effort into putting the games on.
1: Yeah, because, I, I mean, to skip over to a World Cup, I was in Germany in 2006, and, you know, to be at the Brandenburg Gate, you know, which has a giant TV attached to it for the week. You know, the the the, goal, the game when Joe Cole scored the great goal against the Swedes, yeah. uh, it was a two-all mm. draw, maybe a three-all draw, I'm not sure. Two-all, two-all,
0: two-all draw, yeah. all draw. Henry <laughs> Larsson,
1: of course, with a last-minute equalizer. <laughs> have that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just an awesome experience, you know, being in front of the, the Brandenburg Gate with you know, thousands of people. You know, hard to imagine it, you know, after on the wrong end of a year of global pandemic. But I look forward to days like that again.
3: Yeah, one of my um one of my lasting Euros memories was I watched the England versus Portugal game at, at Glastonbury in 2004, and I don't I don't know whether it was the Wednesday or the Thursday, but at that point you you could go to the festival site, but there were no bands on, so everyone had turned up, and the only thing to do really was to to watch the football. They put it on the Pyramid Stage. Wow. And I think they said that this, the estimates were that there were 65,000 people there. And I think that's an underestimate because that's probably based on how many how many sort of paying festival goers we're in, inside <laughs> there. You know, there's always a lot of people that haven't paid. You know, and also you know, clearly all the road, you know, all the roadies, all the road crew, all the lighting guys. You know, there were no 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 stages were being set up. Everyone was watching this game. I think there were, you know there were more people watching it there than they were watching it in the ground. Yeah, it's just you know, just a, a weird experience really to just be in such a big crowd. Obviously, only regret was that. England losing the shootout and you know, everyone then has to slink off and get a, you know a cider to you know, to commiserate themselves rather than you know just the idea that those sixty five thousand people would just go nuts when the winning penalty goes in that would have that really would have been something.
0: I watched that game at an airport and I thought I'd timed it such that I could watch the whole game, but of course it went to uh, extra time and I had to go and catch the flight. And it was a flight back to to the UK. On the flight back, the captain came over the tannoy and said that England had won <laughs> and we're in no. the semi-final <laughs> so I had an hour of uh, of joy on the flying <laughs> was looking forward to whoever they've been playing in the second semi-final and then the mood when we landed I immediately realized something was up yeah it's sort of like Schrodinger's cat you know for for an hour in my life England were in the semi-final
3: you're hoping and that so... plane had crashed who'd you fly with that with the air, air tap yes. Oh,
1: up that game, I was working in the, the only job that I've ever been fired from. Uh, I was <laughs> I was fired a week later for a different incident. But I remember there was a, it was a sort of two-way bar, and in the back room there was a sort of a, the local high school were having like a staff do, and they were doing like speeches and stuff like that, you know, end of term sort of stuff. And I was kind of watching the game. So it was a it was a lull where I could watch the game, and I was watching. I was like, shit, this is going to go to penalties. And they're going to stop talking and I'm going to have to work. And then it literally went to penalties just as they all upped and, you know, the, you know, they all came to the bar. And it was just about to start. And I remember saying to a woman, like she was first in the line. I was like, what do you want? And she was it was like, <laughs> a bunch of elaborate cocktails. That I, I would have had to, you know, look at a book to figure out. And I, I, I just looked at a guy and said, what do you want? He was like six pints of Guinness. I was like, you're first. And I just, just started pouring, slowly pouring these pints of Guinness while watching the penalty shoot. But I did get fired from that job. Sometimes.
2: Seems reasonable to me. Ollie, I suspect your uh, your fan experience of that game was somewhat different from the experience I had watching England-Spain in 1996. I was in the Haven holiday camp on Hailing Island. and <laughs> There's a picture of me, presumably then at 15 years old, in my bright yellow Alessi sweatshirt and feeler trainers, looking quite, quite respectable. I can see you, I
3: can see you carrying that look though.
2: <laughs> white jeans as well. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> cheering like a lunatic at this screen and holding this pint that i'd illicitly got hold of at something out of somewhere and i and that photo was taken for me on a film obviously and developed and i think that was the first time my family ever realized how obsessed i was with sport i mean that's the i think that, that's the <laughs> thing about it. it does actually sort of make everyone look at sport whether they're into sport or not everyone's looking at it and if you get these you know if you get the moment there you can actually catch the bug you know that's at least you know when my my family at least realized that i was quite into the thing
1: sport and alcohol
2: <laughs> well, yeah yeah and clearly fashion <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. possibly hooliganism although
1: I'm, I'm impressed
0: by these people who will spend half an hour queuing for a six or seven pound pint and throw it up in the air when a goal goes in <laughs> you're not going to catch me doing that
1: totally worth it totally worth it
0: (laughs) (laughs) so we've got a month of football ahead of us at the end of which France will probably win but as we know there's always been upset so we'll be looking forward to watching it Anthony thanks very much for joining us cool thanks Tom Ollie next time cheers all